0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, I run an accelerator program, which involves one-on-one coaching from myself, and it also is designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, connecting, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. So the accelerator involves once a month Zoom calls, an annual retreat, and 12 sessions with myself. Our next accelerator launches in January and is filling up now. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me, brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach, and thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers With the world. Now, to today's guest. Lars Tiffany is the head coach of the University of Virginia men's lacrosse program, and they have won back to back national championships. Now, we say back to back, but they won the championship in 2019, and then 2020, their season was cut short due to COVID. So they won this past season in 2021. And before taking the reins at University of Virginia, Lars also spent time coaching at his alma mater, which is Brown University. That's where he played and had a great career. We're going to talk about his career playing at Brown a bit in this conversation. But he coached at Brown from 2007 to 2016, and then he took the leap to the University of Virginia, which is a storied lacrosse program in 2017. He led Brown to three Ivy League championships. And as I said, he's won back-to-back NCAA championships at the University of Virginia. And certainly we get into coaching in this conversation. But we also talk about Lars's journey. And he has a fascinating journey. He is a guy who grew up on a bison farm. His dad owned a steakhouse. And he became a vegetarian at a young age. Lars is somebody who grew up around Native Americans who taught him the game of lacrosse, and he'll talk about the spiritual elements that come with the sport of lacrosse, yet a lot of the kids that he recruits come from wealthy white families who go to private schools in the Northeast, so this conversation is about polarity, it's about duality, it's about the intersection that we all live in, that we all have different sides of us, and Lars really shares himself in this conversation, and so while you're going to get a lot from him when it comes to leadership and coaching and communication, What I loved most about this conversation was it was human, and it was real. And he shared a part of him that I think he shares with a lot of his players, that I think he shares with the game of lacrosse. And I think it makes the game that much more beautiful. It's physical, and it's spiritual. He's intense, and he cares deeply about the personal and human side of the people that he coaches. So, without further ado... I'm so excited to present to you, Coach Lars Tiffany. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where I wanted to start, certainly we're going to get to national chips, and uh, culture and leadership and all this good stuff, but I wanted to start with scotch and sirloin. And uh, the reason I wanted to start with scotch and sirloin is because I went to Syracuse University. And uh, if you didn't go to Syracuse University, you know that there's this restaurant uh, off of Erie Boulevard that has great steak but you can't go to if you're in college because you probably can't afford it uh so when your parents come to town you you ask can we go to the steakhouse in town and when i was doing my research for this i stumbled upon that your family is has been involved with scotch and sirloin for quite some time so Talk about scotch, scotch and sirloin and, and growing up, and then I also read that you're a vegetarian, so we're gonna we're gonna have some interesting conversation about food, which is a good place for us to start. And I'm sure we'll get to cross at some point. So talk about growing up with scotch and sirloin, and also with bison, and um, what what life was like for you as a kid.
1: Oh, you're, uh, you're giving me some softball questions to start here, Brian. I love this because I love talking about the the opportunity I had with. Uh, to grow up on uh, not only a a buffalo ranch uh, in Lafayette, New York, just south of Syracuse, and and but also within the restaurant industry because my father and his brother and uh, started the Scotch and sirloin restaurant chain um, in the in the 1960s. So. My, um, my dad went to Cornell University, never, never quite finished, but got the bug for the hotel restaurant industry. He was in the management school there and uh, uh, set off before graduating out into the world to make his, uh, make his mark and to learn. Uh,
0: hey, and- hey, Lars, I'm going to interrupt you. So sir. Cornell's known for their hospitality school. And so did your dad, did he know that he wanted to get into the restaurant industry or was, where did that come from for him? Do you know?
1: That's a good question. I he, my uh, my grandfather his father owned a grocery store in Binghamton, New York, and so food was always very important and uh it was always very important to uh his family and to him. Um we we couldn't couldn't have a meal without talking about the meal, for, you know, for at least 15-20 minutes and had the preparation and and um and so when did the industry uh, become known for my dad was going to be restaurants? You know, I don't know if I know that, but he ends up, he, he was a Marine. He, he goes off to, uh, he was part of the Korean War and he comes home and finishes up his high school degree. He, he, he didn't finish high school in the normal pattern and comes back and gets his GED and then g- enrolls at a Cornell. But school's not for him. He's got to get out there. And, and maybe this is the way to make money while he's traveling and seeing the country. Uh, my dad would end up going on to visit 55 countries on this planet. And uh, he loved to travel internationally, um, even into his seventies. But uh, so, but when he's traveling in within this country, he's working in different hotels, stay someplace for six months, and learn the business uh, on on the ground, which reminds me of coaching. You know, there's there's no coaching master's degrees uh, that are of, uh, that provide you the type of experience you need. You know, we're a little bit more of the. Uh, middle ages the the blacksmith you know if you've got a a good master and you're the apprentice then you'll be a good master someday you know if you don't you struggle my dad would move from uh, one hotel or restaurant to another throughout this country i know he was was cooking in a hospital in indiana at one point he's out in california in a fancy hotel and and he's learning the industry, and um, and he comes home, and his brother, who had succeeded to go through Cornell Dart Tiffany, and uh, they they come up with an idea of the scotch and sirloin, a steakhouse, and they start their first one with their father, my grandfather, you know, as the original butcher, cutting up uh, chops of meat, and uh, and so they uh, they start they start that one in Binghamton, a uh, lot of success, a lot of success. What was really fun about this, Brian, the very first salad bar in the continental US. Now that's a claim that is hard to substantiate. It's hard to prove, but we're going with it. Um, my uncle, Dar Tiffany had been to Hawaii and then been out there for a, you know, a, a fun week. And and then um, going to the, uh, the luau's where you got up and served yourself a little buffet style, make your own food, make your own salad. And he thought, Ooh, what if we took this back to the United States? What if we took this to a nicer setting restaurant? The risk a little bit was, well, people go out to restaurant. They want to sit down and be served. They don't want to serve themselves. Um, but as you can imagine, it was wildly famous and uh, and popular. And so uh, when my father set up his scotch and sirloin in Syracuse, New York, and uh, specifically DeWitt, he, um, they opened up uh, right on Erie Boulevard there and the, outside the Shopping Town Mall. Great location. Uh, a couple miles you're right from uh Syracuse university. Um, uh, but that wasn't the niche as you re- referenced. We were a little pricier. Um, yeah. there was a lot of burger joints and Ponderosas you could hit on the way before you got to this, got to the But yeah, well, if your parents were in town, you absolutely went there. And, um, I can remember Jim Beheim bringing in a basketball team and my dad would tell me, Hey, you know, uh, they're coming in, you know, Sherman Douglas is coming in. Uh, and, um, uh, Moss and Pearl Washington and I would go in there and get everyone's autographs. It was it was such a big deal for me.
0: Lars, um, did you grow up in the restaurant? Were you did you work in the restaurant? Did you spend time in there? Or what was it like for for Dad to be involved with the restaurant, especially you know a, a steakhouse, a place like you're saying where probably people wanted to wine and dine and and probably drink scotch too.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, my my very first. Night of officially working there, I was 10 years old. It was New Year's Eve. Uh, my dad's restaurant was, uh, it did really well. It was very popular. They could turn on a busy, busy night, five to 600 dinners. Um, they could flip tables three times, you know, starting at five, 530. Well, New Year's Eve, it was a big deal at the Scotch and Sirloin, and, um, and he needed some more help, but the bar was tight. It was tight back there. And he, and he looked, he had the idea, you know, put me behind the bar washing glasses. Cause the bartenders could serve over me they could, <laughs> and, uh, and so, and there I am, I, I, I couldn't have been happier. I got to stay up late. I'm around this raucous, fun crowd of people. It's new year's Eve. Everyone's got their party hats on and I'm washing glasses. I'm using my fingers as I, as I twist the glass at the rim to get the ladies lipsticks off, you know, and I'm just I'm right in the center of it for like seven hours. And uh, there's all the peanuts. My dad's restaurant, you know, all this guy still has this. My, my cousin runs it now, Tom Tiffany and the peanuts there. So I'm getting my food and and I'm just, oh, I just, I, I still remember that night. I remember driving home. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's one in the morning. We're driving. you know, I'm still awake. Um, so it started then. And then, um, yeah, I got to be a bus boy. Uh, there was a very strict protocol. You do not become a waiter. You know, it doesn't matter if you're the you know the owner's son. You've got to be a busboy first for like nine months, and uh, so I bust tables for a while. Uh, I was a bartender after college for uh, for a, a, f- a few stints when I was working on my master's degree, and um, so yeah, I grew up grew up with that restaurant, whether it was working or just hanging out with dad, and and then heading over to the shopping town mall asking for quarters to go play in the arcade.
0: All right, but but vegetarian. So obviously you have a big salad bar there too, but. I'm doing the math on this. I think I read you've been a vegetarian for like 30 years. So, you know, I I think you're 53. So we're saying, all right, maybe since you're 23, what was the impetus for you becoming a vegetarian?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because, you know, there, you got this, I'm I'm the son of a steakhouse owner who's looking at me saying, wait a minute, you're going to become a vegetarian. How does this work? Um, you know, he was really nervous about me coming back. I, you know, looking like a, a scraggly-haired, anemic-looking California guy. So my first yeah, you went
0: was- out to you went out to California to coach after after you played at Brown and you go out mm-hmm. to California. And <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I spent four years in Syracuse, New York, but California and Syracuse, New York, don't have that much in common. Um, and you come back and now you're a vegetarian. I mean, I what was Dad's reaction to that?
1: Yeah. Again, he was, he was fearful at first, you know, and, you know, as, as a side story it's even more cruel. Cause it, I, uh, I brought a California woman back with me, you know, so you, you bring her back to Syracuse, New York. She's from Santa Barbara. That's cruel.
0: Um, <laughs> That's just uh, different. That's just different. <laughs> I was talking to someone this weekend and we were talking about Santa Monica and, and, to, you know, Santa Barbara, Santa Monica, those those places are some of the most beautiful places in the world. And we probably both love Syracuse, New York. This is not a knock on, on the area that you grew up in. Amazing human beings. I would imagine a great place to to grow up and to raise a family, but it is gray and it is cold and you have lakes, but it ain't the Pacific ocean that you're you're looking at. There are distinct differences between those two places.
1: Right. I remember my mother, when she moved to uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, one of my stops along the way was Dartmouth College. And people were trying to, they thought they were warning her. Oh, it's going to be really cold up there. And my mother's like, the sun comes out. Are you kidding me? This is going to be easy. You know, the Syracuse, all the snow and the gray, but, but you're right. it, It was a fantastic place to grow up. I mean, you get four seasons in Syracuse, you get the real like heat, you get the cold, you get the snow, you get some mud, you get everything. And And then, uh, for me specifically with the sport of lacrosse, you know, how fortunate I've been to be around it. I get to grow up with the Onondaga people, you know, the Iroquois. So, um, and the, and the lakes, like you're talking about, we used to water ski all the time on Skinny Atlas Lake. And, uh, we, we love getting out there in the summer. And so it's, um, it was, it was, it was a fabulous place to grow up, but the, um, but yeah, so this vegetarian thing really starts with growing up on a, on a Buffalo ranch and being a part of the, uh. Uh, That's really where I did much more work than the farm, excuse me, than the restaurant. I did much more work on the ranch, and you know, baling hay, fixing fences, but essentially, sort of taking care of the environment for these bison. We had, on average, about forty or fifty head. At one point, we had eighty, and um, I hated slaughter day. That was the worst day of the year. Three hundred sixty-four days a year, I'm taking care of these animals, providing, you know, you know, ensuring that they're healthy, and then the slaughter day. I just, just, I, I, I never sat well with me. Um, and um, and so but I wasn't ready to do it. I didn't know how to do it. this is the uh, this is like the 80s and you know I, I really wanted to be a college player. I wanted to be the best athlete I wanted it could be and I just wasn't I didn't know how to be a vegetarian and there was concerns like if I don't eat meat I mean I'm just gonna get skinny and, and never be able to contribute and so Go to Brown, talk to some people, think about it, but it was really post-Brown. Like you say, I went out to California and uh, as I like to joke, I met some uh, people who were eating fruits and nuts. They were a little fruity and nutty themselves. And next <laughs> thing you know, I gave it a, an experiment for a month and here I am 30 plus years later. And uh, it's, um, but yeah, it was a, the, the conundrum of a dad who owns a steakhouse. And now my father, who at first was hesitant as we talked about, but then he took it as a challenge and he was a really great chef. And I say chef, not just a cook, he was a chef. He loved to create in the kitchen. He was not unafraid. He, and uh, he took it as a challenge. Okay, how can I create this meal um, without the meat as the centerpiece? And so how can cauliflower, how can this head of cauliflower, you know, or, or whatever it was. And all of a sudden he, he's like, he's a pseudo vegetarian. I mean, he's essentially a vegetarian. Once in a while he's eating a piece of meat. He was almost forcing himself to eat a piece of meat in the scotch and sirloin so the customers could see him eating his own meat.
0: <laughs> did he ever serve, did they ever serve bison?
1: He did a little bit. It was never our own. We never got our bison USRDA. we inspected, but we should have because we were organic before organic was a catchy phrase because you know, we never put pesticides or herbicides or anything down on our land. And uh, the hay that the animals ate was from our own land as we bailed the hay from our, we had 250 acres. We were fortunate we had a great piece of property and, um, some of the land of Buffalo, Buffalo had about 150, to 175 acres to roam on, but we had another 75 acres that they couldn't touch. So that was where our best hay fields were.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, fast forward to 2021, and there's way more research on vegan, vegetarian, protein. We've seen the document. I've seen amazing documentaries about world-class athletes like Carl Lewis, who uh, went with that lifestyle. Are, are your players, are you finding that more and more pe- players um, are going in that direction? Or is it still not really popular amongst amongst collegiate athletes that you, that you interact with?
1: Yeah, we're not quite there yet. But I will tell you, there's a documentary that came out maybe two years ago, Game Changers. And if you're familiar with it, it's, um, it, it rocked some athletes because it wasn't just a cyclist or a marathon runner who was now saying, Oh, I'm a vegetarian or a vegan. There was NFL football players. It was an MMA fighter. It was, it was like, wow, these are, there's a, these are, these are men. again, I'm, I'm, I'm a men's sports. I'll focus on that side of it. These are men who need mass who are playing a violent game. And it actually rocked me too, to tell you the truth. I've been, I've been living until my early fifties thinking, you know, if I hadn't have been a vegetarian, you know, I wonder, wonder, wonder if I could have been a better lacrosse player at these old man lacrosse tournaments I play at age 40 or 45. And I watched that documentary and go, that was my secret. That's my secret weapon. And so uh, so there's there's that was uh, that was an eye opening documentary. So but and I I, to t- I bring it up because I had a couple of my men approach me, um, Ryan Pry, Jackson Apel. They, they experimented with it, but they didn't they didn't stick with it. But it, it's changed how they eat, they eat less meat.
0: Um, It's really, it's really interesting. You mentioned, you know, you work with men, you coach men. Like for me, I think there's almost this concept when you're a boy growing up that you need to eat meat and you have to be manly and like eat mm -hmm. a steak. And um, gosh, like I've had those stories running in my head as an adult. And just recently I've started to eat vegan not fully, but I'll do like three days a week. Or for lunch, I'll just get a bunch of veggies and just saute veggies and and just eat them up. And I feel great. And so I'm still trying to figure out for myself, like what is it that I want to do because I, I I've got some inflammation that I that I definitely is impacting my life. And um, like when I eat anti-inflammatory food, I it, it just is is better. And so it, it's something that's really present for me and i'm not a world-class athlete but if i'm not healthy i can't do my job none of us can like we all forget like you know the old saying health is wealth it 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 is so important um so i think it's it's going to be an interesting conversation going forward for all of us to really think a little bit more about what we thought was true even today i had someone say like someone asked like well what do you do for protein don't you feel whatever (laughs) i'm like First of all, veggies have protein in it. Second of all, I'm not so sure that this whole protein thing is is true. I mean, I, I so anyway, this isn't going to be about. Neither one of us are dietitians, um, but I do think it's interesting given your background and given your experience, what you've what you've experienced.
1: Yeah, I, well, I appreciate you bringing it up because what you're you're nailing on is exactly what the message we need to provide to more people. You know, it's uh, I've been when I was younger and I was lifting more weights. I did say I'm in an eternal quest for protein. You know, as a vegetarian. I got to make sure I get my protein. And I did, I hunted down, you know, the beans and rice, the complete protein, but you combine certain uh, non-animal based proteins. You, you have to combine those, you know, whether it was whole wheat bread and peanut butter, which, you know, a little more fat than you probably want, but, but, but you're right. I don't know. I mean, there's, if you start finding out there's more protein and vegetables and seeds and nuts than we maybe have thought there was, you know, I think it was, is it pumpkin seeds or a randomly a complete protein, for example? But
0: yeah, I, I worked with a dietitian and she had me sprinkle pumpkin seeds on everything. And she just yeah. said, it, the anti inflammatory, they have a ton of good nutrients. And now I like toast them and they're delicious and they taste great. So, yeah. So,
1: so for me, it, this started as the being getting out of the death cycle. I wanted out of that. I wanted to be a part of the life cycle. And then I'm just a fortunate beneficiary of these tremendous health benefits. If it had been reversed, I still think I'd be a vegetarian because I'd morally feel so strongly about this. If you say, well, Lars, man, you're uh, you are going to have more inflammation. You, you your your kidneys are really going to be stressed here. You know, your your body's just not going to be you're not going to be playing this old man lacrosse up at Lake Placid anymore. I'd probably still do that. But here I am. I, I get the best of both worlds here. And, and just the more and more people who can understand this and get away from, you know, uh, meat and flesh at every meal viewers and i'm not saying take it completely out like you're saying bam you could be a you could meet mediator just at dinner time and have and have a really healthy and i think you know a happy experience at mealtime
0: yeah what i realized was i was putting chicken or turkey on everything and i was just like all right chicken on everything or roasted turkey on everything and, and but i also realized was i was eating too much like i didn't need because i'm the guy i can eat everything like, put it on my plate it's gonna get eaten like i don't I, I think all of us have different metabolisms and different capacities. Like I can throw back food, which is you used to think was cool. It's not cool once you get to a certain <laughs> age. Um, so anyway, it's also just making sure that you're not overeating because if I overeat on veggies or fruit um, or nuts, it, the impact is just different than if I overeat on meat. But you mentioned something in there, you said the death life cycle. And I want to, I want to, go there a little bit it's clear and you've you've mentioned it that the native americans that you got to spend time with in your childhood that many americans don't especially people in urban environments where, you know where, where i grew up urban suburban you know we don't have a big Native american population uh where i am um and, and in january 2019 you, you've talked about your dad quite a bit in this conversation so far he passed away um and so as i was researching you i was So intrigued by what the last two and a half years have been like for you, because um, we've got your dad passing, we've got two national championships, we've got COVID, um, we've got this ride that you've been on and you've got this experience where at your dad's funeral, you get a lacrosse stick and that lacrosse stick has a lot of meaning to you and then your team. And so I'd love to just get a sense of what that experience was like perhaps being at your dad's funeral um that's a death cycle but there's also a life component there uh just go into that experience and what that's been like for you
1: yeah well thank you for allowing me to do that brian it's uh you know the, the death of a parent is always really hard um it's it's a, uh, but it's the natural call it's a natural way it's 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 the the process you know and i think about for the native americans experience i've had growing up with my friends brad Paulus. Uh, T-Bone Homer, Jake Lazor, Joe Solomon, and uh, playing this beautiful game of lacrosse and realizing it's more than just a game. It's it's really uh, it's the spirituality behind it becomes religious-like for them. And I've adapted some of that, though uh, I don't want to interfere too much with them, but I, I was able to pick up on some of that. And the reason that was happened was because my father was um, not only a Buffalo Ranch owner, but a donor. He gave... The local Onondaga people, eleven buffalo in 1973. He um, he had the buffalo for about five years. When a few of the chiefs came to visit, and uh, the the saying goes, you know, they said it, it, the chiefs came up and Orn Lines was one of them. And said, hey, we've been watching you, and we've been um, we would like to talk. My dad's been, hey, I've been waiting for you. Where you been? And uh, and my dad, who was not necessarily the biggest community outreach person, when you own a 250 acre bison ranch and the scotch and sirloin. And he, he also was part owner in Rochester and Buffalo. You're busy. You're a busy former Marine. He always thought of himself as a Marine. So i like to interject that. And, um, and, and, and so he didn't have a whole lot of time to, to help out at the soup kitchens and to do that type of thing. But, but giving the Native American, giving the Onondagas Buffalo was something that was very important to him. So in 1973, 11 Buffalo left our ranch and went down to the Onondaga Nation. Um, and once they had built their fences, he said, you gotta have big high fences. They gotta be 10 feet high because Buffalo can clear seven or eight feet if they really get a running start there. And, um, and so I was allowed to, and my brothers as well, to have this exposure to ceremonies on the Onondaga Nation, to be a part of the longhouse ceremonies and to really witness much more from the inside than than most white men would be allowed to, um, and um, and so I got to see um, the ceremonies themselves, the traditional dances, but then this game of lacrosse, the fun stuff over on the side, like what is this? And to see how connected it was to their ceremonies and to their people and their way of thinking, um, and so that was uh, what a, what a what a what a incredible opportunity for me, and I you know I thank my parents for that to to be exposed to these. To these Native American people and the spirituality of the game of lacrosse, and so I carry that with me. I'll admit I don't hammer it with my men. I don't promote too much. One might assume, like, okay, Laura, Tiffany, growing up with the uh, the Anadagas, you know, that's going to be a part of his game spiel. It's going to be part of his, you know, the spirituality talks. It's almost like a religion to me, and I want to make sure I ensure everyone has their own place of spirituality, and that we don't sort of impose. Prayer in the locker room because that may make people uncomfortable. But that's how important the game of lacrosse is to me when I think about it with the Native Americans, and so it's it's a uh, it's a place that is personal for me. I love expanding upon it when other, when my men ask me about it, and uh, and maybe I should push it a little bit more, but I'm cautious there be, again because we all have our place in our in our hearts and our soul where uh, where we go when. Um, we want to be alone when we want to think about higher powers and messages and meaning in our lives but yeah for me I, I i circle back um to the uh the native message of the plants and the trees and the spirit game the original lacrosse game was between land animals and winged animals um that that really bides into who i am are you religious uh not in the traditional sense i'm not we uh part of it because we didn't go attend church as a, as children growing up with my parents And so I think I was looking for something and, uh, and there was this natural, uh, there was there was a natural opportunity right there to, uh, to, to make lacrosse and the spirit of the people of the Onondaga and to adopt what they were, what they believed. And so I, so I'm much more aligned with them than any type of traditional religion.
0: And when your dad passes away, I think you, you all didn't bury him because the ground was frozen. Yeah. there goes, Sarah, you know, central New York for you. Um, so we waited a few months, but at the, at the ceremony, it sounded like your dad was having someone create a stick and, and then you got that stick at, at the funeral. Um, talk about that experience and what, what that was like and and how that gave you a sense of clarity or, or. Yeah,
1: it, it really completes who I am and, and, and where I come from when I'm looking for meaning of life at, um, as um, at the ceremony, the original um, funeral for my father, where we couldn't bury him. That was in uh, early February. He, um, as, as things were wrapping up, we'd gone to a local restaurant, the number five, which had been right next door to where my grandfather's grocery store had been uh, for many, many years, uh, Tiffany Grocery, that um, Joe Solomon, one of my best friend, uh, and a guy I played lacrosse with growing up, he's like, okay, hey, Tiff, I got something. and um, and he hands me this six-foot-long stick made of uh, made of hickory by Alfie Jacques, the stick maker of the Onondaga people. And my father had been working on getting the stick to me. Um, I, I, I'd be lying if I said it was a total surprise. My father, at one point in the last few months of his life, had mentioned, "I've been trying to get this stick." It just my dad was never the most patient person in the world, and it takes it takes a while to build a good lacrosse stick. And Alfie it takes probably up to nine months to. Uh, to, to the process and curing the wood and getting it curved and and uh, and doing everything the right way and and so but I really kind of forgotten about it because obviously with the with, with my father's condition and uh, the last few months but and so I um so I'm handed this stick here's a gift from your father I mean it's amazing right to get a gift from someone at their funeral and so Joe hands me this gift and. And uh, what was funny is the first people were at my family, oh, geez, we got to get that on the wall. We got to mount that. We got to protect it. And I'm buying into it. I forgot something. And Joe Solomon says, no, 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 no. This stick was built to be played with. They're meant to be played with. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And so, uh, and so took it back to Charlottesville as we got underwent our 2019 season and, and, um, brought it to practice and brought, we'd bring it out every Sunday for sure. And then we started saying, all right, fellas, uh, whoever has, uh, you know the the award for not the player of the game. We have a game ball for that, but more sort of the intensity. Maybe it was a couple of physical plays. Maybe it was diving for loose balls. Um, maybe it was just being an incredible teammate. You know they got the they get the lacrosse stick, so they I hand them the stick, and um, and then they have it for the week, and then they bring it back uh, before the next game. Um, but yeah, it's there to be played with and it's a piece of them. And again, you talked about, you asked about my spirituality, that that's that's where it comes from. Here's a piece, here's a piece of the land, this stick, there, there's no metal alloy in there. There's no plastic in there. This is this is this is a, this is a piece of uh, a stick. This is a part of it, the equipment of the game that is all from the Mother Earth. And uh, and so it's a uh, something that really helps connect me and hopefully my men in little ways with the origins of this game
0: i can't help but think as i hear you talk about mother earth and life and death and the cycle and perhaps there are people that you're going to recruit in long island or in where i'm from in the baltimore dc maryland area um where there are these hotbeds of lacrosse and perhaps they're looking at you as this hippy dippy from california in in the way that you're talking and I'm just curious about misconceptions because lax pros. I said I went to Syracuse, like I've been around lax bros. Like I've seen lax bros. Right. And, and, and then there are misconceptions also about Native Americans in this country. And so I'd love for you to talk about stereotypes, whether it's about what people may perceive lacrosse people to be like. Um and maybe misconceptions about Native Americans and maybe how might people might perceive what they are like in a in a different way or a different capacity. But you've sat at an interesting intersection, and so I'm curious to just hear your perspective on perhaps the generalizations or the stereotypes or the misconceptions that you think exist within the sport of lacrosse and also within the Native American community.
1: Uh, I love where you're going here, Brian, because we, it's. It's natural for us to want to put people into a box, whether it's in our own head. How do I define this person or this group of people? And it's so simple, it's easier for us if there is a simple definition. and um, and and yet there's the conundrums. there's the where it doesn't match. and I, and I, I appreciate you talking about me, maybe potentially this crossroads, like, okay, which way we we going here? You know, for example, I guess we started off, I grew up on a bison ranch. you know, if if you saw me at four thirty pm, you know, uh, as a day was winding down, you would look at me, my jeans are ripped, I, my ears are black with, and my hands are greased up. You know, I, I look like a poor dirt farmer, you know, an hour and a half later, I'm in the scotch and sirloin, all cleaned up, dressed up, ordering not only the prime rib, um, but the Alaskan king crab legs, because my dad said, eat whatever you want, you know, and so I, I didn't realize how spoiled I was, you know, how obnoxious that, that order was, but I am eating like a King, you know, but uh, so, so there, that's my intersection. I, you know, I'm living two different worlds and then, and I get to do the same with my existence with the native American population, which, you know, Lafayette high school is probably a quarter native, maybe 20%, you know, good sized portion. And then there's a, a a normal non-native population of the white, the Caucasians. And, and then combining that with the game of lacrosse. I mean, come on, this game of lacrosse, we have certainly earned Rich boy, lax bro. Daddy will get me out of the jam. Don't worry about it. Elite sport, that. But yet, the Aboriginal roots are so different, right? You know, it's it's like this. You go watch a box lacrosse game between two native teams. There's there's brawls. It is a physical, physical, startling game, and yet the game of lacrosse as you and I grew up with, with our, with our white friends and our white teams and the club teams and there's affluence, there's money. And you know, that, there's a famous this really funny episode of 30 Rock where that one actor is like just this quick little blurb of, man, I want to make so much money. Mike, I'm going to be so rich. My kids are going to play lacrosse. You know, <laughs> it's just, I've, i remember seeing that just laughing out loud, but, but you know, this the, that intersection. And then here I am here, I come along, right. I'm this like touchy feely eating my fruits and nuts Vegetarian dude, um, and 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 yet you know who who really enjoys our book clubs that we have with our team. Like we're on our seventh book at UVA with our leadership training development, and yet if you, I if you see Virginia play, if you watch us, we, we're one of the leading teams for penalties. Like we have to have a good man down defense because we're physical we're aggressive we're tough so it's that balance of trying to bring in that tenacity I've, i experienced with the boxer cross game and the native play with uh with this more gentlemanly like sort of aura around our sport and so that's that balance that hopefully you what know, i what i you know this is a little bit of pat myself on the back but the idea that if a listener were to, to enjoy this this podcast and say wow this, Lars is really intuitive and and, and thinks about the game and thinks about the place on this earth and where he is with it and his men with it. And then, Oh my gosh, I hate playing lacrosse against him because he's the first one to slash you and hit you and, and just, just be tenacious on the field. So that balance there as well.
0: What's what is, so the history here, just so people are clear native Americans invented the sport. Um, And what, at what point did it become, Look, I'm from Montgomery County, Maryland. So growing up, when I grew up, the only people that really played lacrosse were the private school kids. Uh, And I went to a a very nice public school. And now that public school, everyone seems to play lacrosse and it's changed. But I remember our public school, we would go up to Annapolis and the kids would just get their asses kicked in lacrosse because it was more popular in Annapolis and Baltimore. But the state of Maryland, it now has spread to like the DC region, but growing up, Georgetown Prep was a, a lacrosse school, Landon was a lacrosse school. You know, and now it's like all the private schools are lacrosse schools in our area right. and now the public schools also have good lacrosse players. So it's just boomed. Um and I had friends that played lacrosse in high school, but most of them started playing maybe in middle school or maybe in high school. Now it's like they pick it up when they're 5 years old. Um what is there a history there as far as when it moved from these sort of uh, Native American communities into maybe prep schools or private schools. I'm just ignorant to it. I don't know. Is there, is there anything there that that, that happened or what's, what's the history there?
1: Yeah, and this is where I make my plug for someone I went to high school with, Don Fisher. Uh, he went to Lafayette High School. He's now a professor uh, in Western New York. And uh, he wrote a book, The History of Lacrosse, and he dives hard into all of this you know, it starts in the 1800s. Um, I think George De Beer is, is the first name that I, r- I recall this transformation of trying to civilize the game of lacrosse as the, as the white men look at this game and say, okay, they don't have boundaries. There's no, there's no s- established rules here. How do, how do we provide rules? How do we provide ba- create boundaries here and like goals as opposed to, to hit this tree or between these two trees, that big rock for a goal. And, um, and so, I I'm, I'm I'm given what you know Don Fisher spent you know years describing in incredible detail the history of the game of lacrosse and the transformation but it's interesting how does it get adopted by the wealthy elite of the Baltimore area into the clubs of the Mount Washington Tavern for example you know Mount Washington Lacrosse Club and um and and other clubs like that down there and 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 now it's 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 almost sort of like okay this is a game that only the wealthy can play because it's the 1910s 1920s of course there was more wealth coming out at that, that point but you know who can play during the 30s the depression era um you know that you had to be you know you had to be able to not have to work you know and and it's just it's it's amazing how that it i it it, it would just send us hours to try to digest into all this but you're right it's it's just really just. It's amazing, this Aboriginal warrior, the game of lacrosse, has developed young Native Americans into warriors, into better men, battle, battle tested, prepared. And yet we've got this over here, um, this uh, wealthy elite class, you know, civilizing the game. And you still see it today, right? Because up in the Baltimore, it's the Gilmans and the Calvert Halls and, and McDonough's playing this game. And it tends to be affluent people. Right. And and uh, and and Georgetown Prep and Landon and I write St. John's is playing great lacrosse down there as well. And Bullis. It's yeah. And so there I am now, I'm a University of Virginia lacrosse coach and I want to connect with those native people. I want to find the public school because I'm a public school guy. And uh, and yet oftentimes the best lacrosse is being played in the private sector (laughs) because. They were given a stick at a young age, and they were on their travel teams at first and second grade, and they just have those ten thousand hours that Malcolm Gladwell, you know, exposed, and and they've got just more opportunities to be on the travel elite team, and and um and so there's that conundrum, like, gosh, I wish I could connect more with uh with that other sector.
0: We'll chat about it maybe off off air. I had an idea a few years ago about okay. this because it it just look I. I love hockey. I didn't play ice hockey growing up. My parents didn't want to wake up at 4am and I'm one of three boys to take me there. But my best friend was a very good ice hockey player. And I was with him this past weekend and he said, I wish I played lacrosse (laughs) and uh, um, great hand eye coordination, great shot. Um, he also, I think when it, he's like, and lacrosse, I don't have to go to the other side. I don't have to run. I, I could just stay in one side. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's just a funny guy. Um, but you think about lacrosse, it's a stick and a ball in a net. And obviously you then get a helmet and all this stuff. But whereas ice hockey is limited because you need a sheet of ice to go play unless you're, you know, up North somewhere, most of our country doesn't have access to ice rinks. Uh, you know, it, the game of lacrosse should be more available to urban environments and to other areas. And, and that's a whole other conversation, but I want to go back to the life and death piece, because we mentioned your dad passing away in 2019. And that's also a year where you win a national championship at, at UVA. And so I want to know, like, what did it feel like right after that game uh, you all win a national championship. What did it feel like in that moment? Did you have some silence? Did you have some peace at all um, to just be mindful and, and sit with that moment after you won?
1: Uh, it was, reflecting back in 2019, um, the, the the men who played for us, the Ryan Conrad and Dave Smith and Michael Krause, the three captains we had, had done an incredible job. Um, it was a... It, I tried not to focus too much on me and my personal adventure through the 2019 season. Yes, you know, as a coach, I'm a piece of this. And for me, I, uh, I relished the attention to my dad because I was still gr- in that grieving process. And, you know, Paul Carkatera, Quig Kasnich, Chris Cotter, the announcers, they did a really nice job of, you know, exposing the story of the stick that Joe Solomon handed me the gift from my father and and how the stick was on the sidelines. And we brought it to just, you know, to, uh, to every game and, and most practices. And I, and I, and I relished that because it kept kept my father's spirit and name alive. But, but as I reflected back on it, I really was, you know, i I need to make sure this is, it's about the men who won this lacrosse game on the field, the warriors themselves. And, um, and so it was, um, in my own my my own private moments, yes. Um, you know, the, the gratitude towards uh you know the people who were behind me and certainly my mother and father who gave me everything. Um and 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 the Native Americans who I grew up with, as I mentioned, their names earlier, and and how they taught me the spirituality and the deep meaning of the game of lacrosse. I mean, we played all the sports together. My Native friends played some baseball, you know, even though that's supposed to be sacrilegious. You know, we played <laughs> basketball, football together. We played all the sports growing up. But there was this other game that had this deeper meaning. You could see it from their parents on the sidelines during the game. It felt felt different. As a young man, I didn't understand what that was. As I got older, I understood better. And and so it allowed me sort of the natural way of life to under, to digest my father's death, to understand that this is the way of the world through the Native American eyes. And, and, uh, and as, as people go on to the spirit world, whatever that world is defined by you and your own faith and your religion. And so, but I wanted to make sure I kept the focus on the men. And so I'm sort of tra- transitioning here on the question to the next. So in 2021, fortunate enough to be a part of another national championship team I really wanted to deflect away from me and, and my dad, which I appreciated the interest and in the stick, but I, it's like that these are the warriors. These are the ones who've made the plays that have done it on the field and to celebrate the new captains, uh, you know, and Jared Connors and, and what he did for us and, uh, um, and Doc Aiken and his return and, and Matt Moore and Connor Schellenberger and to celebrate the men.
0: What's the difference about winning in a pandemic um, having a season canceled in, in between uh, from 20, you, you know, back-to-back champion, you're, you're, you're definitely going the record bus cause you're back-to-back championships, but it's also like, all right, well, we had a season taken from us in 2020. So um, what was it like for you? The differences between the two and I don't mean players. I, I really am curious about, you know, 2019 You know, it's like, we think we go through adversity. We think we go through hard stuff Mm and sacrifice. And I'm sure it felt like that then, but 2021, when, you know, I'm sure practice times were limited and, uh, it's like, we have to get the season in and do the best we can. What were the differences as far as building culture and building team and communication and leadership in, in between the two seasons, one in a pandemic and one not?
1: right it's so it's so distinct i can remember having this thought of all right whoever wins the national championship in 2021 has dealt with all the hurdles that you just mentioned of covid the best well now sitting here having won the national championship 2021 i'm not sure that's true i'm not sure what we had the magic formula um because there was a bunch of bumps along the way and it started it started early you know in the fall of 2020 when we all the students returned to campus uh, which we call grounds here in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they st- return to campuses all over the country. Us lacrosse players as a whole, uh, division one, two, three, we didn't do a great job with COVID protocols and rules. You know, we're, uh, uh, when you're six months away from a game and it's August and early September, and it's, it's hard to understand uh, the ramifications of what you do today could impact tomorrow and tomorrow might be literally tomorrow or tomorrow could be six months from now. And so uh we just, we struggled with it. You know, we we tend to be more social beasts. Um, and, um, and so we created our own hurdles, you know, and I know we weren't the only school, um, but I can only really focus in on university of Virginia and, you know, just having some social events where we were too, too many of us and we were too close. And yet that's what we naturally are. That's who we are. We're human beings. You know, we, Sometimes we become human doings, right? We got to do this, do that, you know, check off the list. Got to get here, got to get there. But we're beings. We're emotionally um, dependent upon each other. We need that connection. But yet COVID was saying, you can't do that. No more than 10 people. Um, don't be that close to each other. We got to stay with six feet apart. And, and so that was the struggle. Um, and so what that is, those struggles created more struggles because now, you know, we, were, uh, we, we, we had to shut things down for a month or so you know, and no practice or small group practice. And that was, you know, as you talk about the obstacles, we created some of our own obstacles along those ways because of our inability to, to follow the protocols per se. Now, it doesn't mean we were bad people. Um, you know, there, there was no sort of sexism or racism or harassment, it was just, fellas, it's a pandemic. <laughs> we got to catch on to this, all right? And I no more excuses. Stop the excuses. I get it. I, we all hate this, but you got to wear the dang mask. You got to stay away from each other. And so those are the obstacles. And so really the fall of 2020, the lead up to the 2021 spring was a bit of a debacle. And so we really had to hit the reset button January 15th when we started practice. And, and we we're fortunate here that we're not in the Ivy League. The Ivy League just chose to play no sports this past academic year and we we're fortunate the ACC and the University of Virginia chose to give us a chance. And boy we took advantage of that second chance, didn't we? And uh but you know but there were the bumps and ups and downs. 2019 the championship season we there's a trajectory. We just slowly but surely got better 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 better. And it, you could feel it and sense it. Um and yes, we won a bunch of close games. We won five games in overtime in 2019. But I could, there was an attitude like, yeah, here we go. Here we go. We believed. 2021, it was hard to do that because of the some big ups. And then, bam, back down. And your alma mater. Boy, we struggled. You know, we go up to the Carrier dome and lose by 10, which feels like 100. And then we get to play them again. End of the regular season in April in Charlottesville. Here we go. All right. Here's our chance to retaliate. Bang, we lose again. And so that's our that's our, our last game on the way into the NCAA tournament. And so I don't know if we ever felt comfortable with the way we attacked the COVID protocols and the obstacles and the challenges. and um, But we stuck with our system of our culture building, with our book reading of our cultural Thursdays. And we get there and expose ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable. We stuck to who we are. And you could say that I had a lot to do that. You could also say, we started shooting the ball really really well in the month of may you know and uh like a college basketball team that can't miss their three pointers they get hot we got hot shooting the ball but um but yeah it was a uh it was certainly a challenge and i'll admit to you brian tonight as we're getting ready for the men to return for the fall of 2021 i'm uh you know i i tend to be a, a, a you know, more of a hugger you know a player's coach But tonight, I am reading them the Absolute Riot Act. Fellas, we cannot do what we did last fall. (laughs) We've got to be whatever the protocol is, whether the Delta variant pushes us into a new arena, this is straightforward, rules by the book, you know, no debate. We've got to make sure we don't put ourselves in the sort of purgatory we did last fall.
0: Lars, you are a thoughtful, introspective guy. Which of those two experiences, 2019, where you describe it as just kind of constantly moving up versus 2021 and the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys, which of those are more consistent with how you've experienced life throughout your lens and throughout your eyes and your career?
1: Yeah, I, I really believe the, the former as opposed to the latter, that the, uh, the, the concept of you know driving yourself forward personally and then the men amongst you. Uh, the coaches amongst you to continue to be better every day with the phrase we use it's a race to improve use it learn this from a man chris buck who's a sports psychologist worked with us at brown it's a race to improve and whether that means you're a team that starts off the season slow and you get to 500 by the end of the year and and you don't go advanced to way tournament did you improve or for us in the ACC, the race to improve is can you continue to get better and then win the national championship at the end of the season. And um, it, it's it's that race to improve. And so that's what I try to see within our programs is that consistent sort of step forward, step forward.
0: We talked about post-2019 and how as maybe too much focus on yourself and the stick and your story in 2021, really wanting to make it about the warriors or the guys on the field. I want to go to you. What is your pregame routine? What are you doing before the lights come on? Um, And like a a follow-up to that is, is it the same as a player or has it evolved since your playing days when you played at Brown? Um, But walk us through your mind, take us into your, your chatter in your mind and what you're doing or what your actions are before a game. Wow.
1: I don't know if anyone's ever asked me this, Brian, cause I don't know if I've ever told anybody this, but, uh, I have a, uh, I have my own routine. It's about 15 minutes and, uh, I, I hide myself away. I didn't do this as a player to answer that part of the question. Um, but as a coach, a couple hours before game time, um, I find a quiet place and, uh, and I, um, I have a piece of paper with all my ancestors. Um, names on it and my friends who've, who've passed away, um, and animals and, um, and that's maybe influenced by the native American, you know, uh, sort of spirituality of, of respect the game, respect the land, respect mother earth. Um, and I reflect on all those who've impacted my life, who've gone. And then I reflect on those who are still here, who I love. And, uh, whether it's my wife, my daughter, um, uh, my brothers, um their family members my mother who's still alive faith corwin and i get to i get to a place and i try to pick a t- I tend to pick a topic um and then i see that that topic that's important to me um and where i learn from each of those individuals who've come and given me so much to learn from them and given me the opportunity i have today and so i get into a quiet place for about 15 minutes um, I'll be honest with you this, sometimes there's tears. Um, and, um, and then I, I, I leave that space, whether it's, a, a hotel room where I'm alone or, um, a, a little nook in the campus and, uh, and I come out and I feel stronger, I feel, in, in I feel in a, in a mindset of, uh, of, of more focus. It's, it's, uh, you know, the pressures of the game and everything that's going on and all that's the weight of it is gone, is released. And now I get to focus on the men because it's like I've redirected those who have helped me be where I am today and the messages that I've learned from them. I can now channel this into the men, into the people I'm going to coach that day. So that's that's uh, I appreciate you asking. That. I, mean, I don't think I've ever told anyone about that. And uh, I, I wonder if my assistants i have been fortunate to have Sean Kerwin with me for seven years and Kip Turner for 11 years. Um I, I I would suspect they're suspicious because there's <laughs> they they've never been able to find me, you know, on a game day for <laughs> those years. And um and they they know not to come looking for me. And so it's um that's that's a really important piece for me. With the men, um, we don't do prayer in the uh in the locker room. Uh it's not something I've ever believed in, and it's also probably not appropriate in, in this day and age with uh everything that we're we've gotta to attend to, but it's um I wanna ensure that they've got their time and we try not to come together too early that um, they find their moments. Um, I've tried not to interfere with men's preparations. Um, some guys wanna be alone. Some guys got the headphones on listening to heavy metal. You know, They're getting self amped up. Some guys need the quiet place. I've, I think I've been guilty sometimes as a younger head coach of doing the big pregame speech and getting all fiery but you're not playing for 45 more minutes. <laughs> and then you, and so, you know, it's like, okay, Lars, you know, let's be a little bit more. So we're, we tend to be more analytical in our pregame speech, 45 minutes before the game and uh, talking about offense, defense, man up, man downs, clears and rides, going over some final reviews, but not for more than three minutes, just kind of touching some things. And maybe a little bit of word of inspiration, but not too much. Again, I don't, we don't need to have them peaking 30 minutes before the opening faceoff. Um, and then we have a ritual and it's captains we will make a speech this year. John Fox, he would get in there right before game time. That's where we try to get them more of that, you know, the razor focus, inspiring words. And oftentimes they're the same words just to have that consistency, that routine that so many SFS athletes and coaches like to have.
0: So good. I, I spent some time with a division one football team and football teams. I'm, you know, you can go across the hall and, and, and see football, You have a a, a big football program at UVA, but what's so interesting about football teams and the collegiate level is 105 players and you've got a kicker, you've got a quarterback, you got a linebacker, you got a wide receiver, you got a safety. I mean, they play different positions and based on those positions, they may need different intensity levels or energy levels to do their job. You mentioned lacrosse being a physical sport and you don't shy away from being aggressive And football is a physical sport. Hockey is a physical game. Um, I've worked with wrestling, it's a physical sport. And what I've noticed is if you just sit there and observe the athletes, they all need something different. And you got to figure out what is that optimal zone of functioning for each of them. And a lot of them haven't figured that out um, in high school. In high school, they might just be the rah-rah guy, or they might just go out and just show up because they're just better than everybody. That's why they're playing at college. Um, And so college is this amazing time where they start to figure out, well, what do I actually need? And it's an amazing opportunity to have conversations with them about some of them need silence. Some of them need prayer or meditation. Others might need to bounce up and down and get ready to hit someone. Some might need face paint on their face and, and sort of, like, it, but it, I think it none of it matters as long as it's intentional and as long as it's thoughtful. And uh, I saw that in football. I was so amazed by the positions. And then we had some big 300 pound dudes that are just sitting there and they're just ready to go. And uh, mm-hmm. so as you bring up your routine, it's interesting to think about for, for your players as well. And you mentioned books. You said, Hey, we've we've done seven books every year. We pick a different book. What book are you all reading for the the next year? And and why did you pick that book?
1: Yeah. So my, my ultimate goal is to have eight really inspiring books that uh, make us really think about ourselves as men to become difference makers and leaders, but also to the great Virginia lacrosse players and captains and leaders. And um, we're, So the idea to get eight is I use one a semester, you're with me for four years, eight semesters, so that I can sort of recycle some of these really good books. We're on book seven. Uh, This one's Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, Um, you know, The Secrets of Success. And I don't know if it's necessarily going to be as the best of our eight books that we come up with. Um, but it was, uh, I'll admit this one was a little bit of a scramble. We were fortunate to have a season go long into, uh, into late May. And then it was, uh, early June and I'm looking around my staff, like, fellas, the guys are going to be back here in two and a half months. We, we got to pick a book quickly here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what's fun is people recommend books to me all the time. And, and, I, and I get to be a bit of a uh, you know, sort of a, a reviewer and, um, and it was, I'll say, okay, is this a book for me? and my staff, is this a book for my captains or is this a book for my team? And, you know, they'll give me a suggestion and I'll, I'll try to dive into most of the book recommendations. And and some are fantastic books, but it just it just wouldn't work well. Um, what was uh, Alfred uh adventure there? Endurance, you know, as he went through the Antarctic and they were frozen, locked in. And incredible survival story, how they lost zero human beings. They had to kill some dogs, which, Hurt me. But they had to kill They survived. Every human being survived. And and yet it was kind of the same 200 pages of this incredible endurance. And so there wasn't a lot of internal meaning. And so it would only last a couple weeks for us, whereas we want a book to last a semester. And so uh, The Obstacle is Away by Ron Holiday with the Stoicism. Fantastic, because there's 30 different examples of people of history, whether it was military or, or scientific discovery or sports and the obstacle they overcame. And so that one's great because I can say, okay, coming up this week, uh, the Jones family, we, we we split up our team into families, a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, you got four people as a family and the seniors, the, the leader. So Jones is a senior. Jones, uh, your choice. What are we doing in the obstacles away? Uh, chapter 17, all right, chapter 17, everybody, two days from now, Cultural Thursday, we'll dive into it. And so some of the books have been really, really conducive for us to easily get into uh, things that resonate with us as 18 to 22-year-old people and a 53-year-old guy. And how does it connect with UVA lacrosse? Other times, we'll go into a book that's a deeper, more of like a novel, uh, The Boys in a Boat, Uh, one of my favorite books, maybe the favorite book uh, that I've ever read, You know, the the buildup of... uh, uh, of this University of Washington crew team in the 30s with the backdrop being the militarization of Nazi Germany. Uh, and it all culminates really at the Berlin Olympics. The, incredible book. And, and so that one, that, that one, they've got to read throughout the summer. You know, you can't just pick up a couple pages beforehand because we're doing chapter 17, like in the, the obstacles away. So we're, um, we've, uh, I, 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 I tell you, Brian, the, the moments in the classroom or the locker room, or even outside, sometimes we do our book club. Thursdays, it's about a half hour. It's been, there's been some aha moments of vulnerability, of exposure, of connecting thoughts from over here to men's lacrosse, Virginia style here. And it's, I walk away kind of floating on a cloud nine sometimes. And uh, to see young, young people who maybe weren't comfortable talking in front of the whole group, you know, sharing emotions, sharing things from their past that is really meaningful and can make allows us all to connect that much better and that's and be that much more cohesive and create a team
0: you mentioned captains and there are sports teams that I've been around that say yeah oh, we don't do captains everybody's a leader on this team you all need to be responsible and that's sort of the approach but you have been very intentional with when you select your captains how you select them and what you empower them with. So talk about how you think about leadership and captainship as it relates to the team.
1: Sure. Uh, First and foremost, the development of your men and development of your leaders cannot be haphazard. It's, uh, I, I used to do that, you know, knowing, okay, we've got Dave Smith, you know, 2019, we've got John Fox in 2020, 2021, natural born leaders. Some people just come out of their mother's womb, ready to be captains and ready to do all the tough things to go against what's popular, to do what's best for the team, to get into um, their teammates' faces when they need it. You know, Lars, even- were you
0: were you that way?
1: Um, I, I tended to have some more natural leadership abilities, but I wasn't the strongest backbone to go to you if you were older than me. I struggled confront, with that. To confront. I had a struggle. I struggled confronting. I was fortunate to be a two-time captain at Brown. And so I learned my from my first year where I was weak in certain areas. And so I was lucky, but most of us don't get that second chance. And so my job now is to make sure the captains are willing to do those tougher things to f- identify their weaknesses. So for example, our captains upcoming are Matt Moore, Kate Southstead and Grayson Soliday. What I learned from George Moore, uh, a member of our athletics department here, when uh, during a lunch a few years ago, cause I was torn, when do I do captain? So I do it right when the season ends in May or do I let the incoming freshmen have a vote? Should we do it in September? Because shouldn't they be able to vote for who's going to be their captain? And I was always torn on it. One lunch with George Morris, and it was crystal clear, obvious. And I'm going to, as loud as I can, do your captains as soon as the season ends. Uh, who cares what the incoming freshmen think? They don't know anything, okay? <laughs> you know, you, what we now use is those three months of the summer to work with the upcoming captains. So Matt Moore, Grayson Saladay, Kate Salstad, we've had four different meetings this summer. Um, I've had a man named Bob Anderson, a fantastic, fantastic human being in developing leadership. He works with companies and corporate executives. He's working around a lacrosse team. He works with athletic departments. I am investing in those three captains as much time and energy as I can, while giving them some break because it's summer. But we are using a book called The Captain Class by Sam Walker, incredible book if you wanna focus on your leadership and captains. Um, and it's a new copyright. It's, re- it's only relatively four years old. And, and we are putting as much time and effort. So Cade, Grace and Matt Moore, early conversations. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses as a leader, as a captain? Let's talk about that, let's expose that. And then what's the language of being a captain? How are you going to communicate? And then some of these scenarios that we talked about. So, okay, so we, let's say we have a guy on our team and he's really good. But he's not all in on this practicing hard stuff every day. He's not all in on getting after it in the weight room, and and the young guys are watching him over in the weight room, not bust his butt, and yet he's a starter. That's a conflicting message. If the coach is saying, "Hey, you know, you got to grind it out. It's a, you're battling for playing time. The toughest and the hardest are going to be the ones that earn you earn playing time around here." You know, so how do we how do we manage all that? And when we recognize it's not black and white, and well. That guy doesn't, that's who he is, you know? That's how he prepares for games. And he still scores four goals a game. And just going through these and then using this book, Captain Class, and we'll go through a different chapter and, and exposes what captains were from elite teams of the past, professional teams, and using examples from that is showing us eventually, there isn't one way of being a great captain. There are multiple ways of doing it. There's certain things we all have to take and attend to as captains but how you do it, whether you're the big vocal rah-rah guy, or maybe you've got like that Tim Duncan from the San Antonio Spurs look. He just gives you the look, and that's all he needed to do. And as a, as a player under Tim Captain's captaincy, um, you were ready it up you, you knew, okay, I gotta step it up. And, um, and how do you confront? It's, so we spend so much time on it, so it's not haphazard that we have good leadership some years and don't have it the next year. Does it guarantee great leadership? No, of course not. But we are going to do everything we can for Matt Moore, Kate Salstad, and Grayson Saladay to be the best captains they, they possibly can be, to get themselves in some zones that they may have made them uncomfortable, but we need it. We need it because I'm not there Friday and Saturday night you know, at the event, at the party. And I'm not there in the locker room all the time when somebody's bad-mouthing something at practice. I'm not there. And so it's, it's, it's vital. And so I appreciate you asking about it because it's something I think that we've done. Um, we've done really well here at Virginia. And it, I, I give Hannon Wright, a former Virginia lacrosse player and coach so much credit about Lars. You need to focus on leadership development here with UVA because the history of UVA is some years great leadership and in other years not. We got to make sure we have it every year.
0: It's interesting. I had on somebody, his name is Dan Helfrich and Dan's the CEO of Deloitte Consulting and has 60,000 people under him. Um, and I'm thinking about what you're talking about. And, you know, lacrosse program is a pretty big program. You you have a lot of kids or, or you call them men and we're going to get to men in a second. You have a lot of men um, in your program. Uh, and Dan talks about captains over coaching and He says, you know, focus on captainship rather than coaching because he played soccer at Georgetown and he saw the impact that captains would have on the program, even more so than potentially the coaches. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing you talk and I'm really thinking about the teams that I've worked with. And I think you are spot on. So often we wait till we have the team fully formed before Mm -hmm. we decide who the captains are. And I think you're spot on as soon as the season ends the coaches all are moving on to the next season and thinking about recruiting and what system are we going to run and all this other stuff, but they don't necessarily bring the players into that experience. And I think it's so valuable to have your captains be a part of that from the beginning, because the season starts before the guys even get there. It's it it is the, the forming and storming and norming and all the team dynamics are already starting to take place. So I, that's a really good takeaway for me. And I hope people listening will take that with them. And then um, I want to go back to this, this idea of men. You have said, you know, we need men, men, men. You've probably said the word men over 30 times in our conversation today. How do you define what it means to be a man?
1: Yeah, it's um, the ability to love and the ability to be loved at the fundamental state. You know, so that's where the, the the Lars Tiffany, the touchy-feely guy that. I don't know if I naturally felt comfortable when I was a young man, because my dad, again, we talked about, it, he's a Marine and he was tough. We, he loved us, we knew that for sure. My brothers, Hudson, Peter and I, we all knew he loved us, but he was tough. And, uh, but, and so I just, when I think about the definition of a man at its purest state is the ability to love others and the ability to be loved, which sometimes is the hardest part. Some of those guys were, were okay doing for others, but I got it. I don't need you. I don't need your support. I'm good. But no letting others into our lives and giving of ourselves, letting them see our emotions, you know, and letting people love us truly. So that's, I fundamentally see being a real man from there. The reason I use the word man is because we're talking about 18 to 22 year olds. I'm not talking about 15 year olds, right? These are people who are living on their own. These are people who are making decisions for themselves. Um, That you've got to define yourself as someone who's responsible for yourself. If I call you a boy and you're 18 to 22 years old, that's derogatory. You are not resisting peer pressure. You are not standing up and doing what's best for the team and for you. You are just succumbing to, you know, now there may be some things deeper, you know, some some issues with, um, with alcoholism or depression, and then you're relying on these substances. And so we'll try to get you professional help. But the idea that is I, I need men on the field making big time decisions during games. I need men on the field on Saturday, on off the field on Saturday and Friday nights making decisions that are what a man would make and not just going along with the crowd. And so if I talk about my players as kids, I've sort of undercut everything I'm trying to do, which is to develop better men great men, difference makers, leaders. If I refer to them as men, then they'll hopefully behave like men and be men and stand up for what's right, for what's right for them and what's right for the team and right for the people that they love and who love them.
0: As we're recording this, you mentioned before we even hit the record button that you're home, your daughter is upstairs and not feeling well today. And so here you are, this is the real world, right? Like we have responsibilities that go beyond our our job. How has fatherhood impacted you as a coach?
1: It's changed everything. And I'm not the first one to bring this up. I know, I know many others have brought this up. So this is repeating what everyone already knows the amount of patience it's put into my, into my being is something I wish I had before she was born. You know, I, as a younger coach, uh, I was, uh, I, I, I didn't understand the mistakes as much. I didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't as patient with those mistakes. And, uh, and as all of us parents know, <laughs> you can't make this little person do what you want them to do. I can't make that 19 year old man catch that pass. I can't make him, you know, make the right decision within the slide package every time. I can drill it. I can practice it. I can pr- put him in the best position to prepare to make the right decisions. And if they're not making the right decisions, you know, I've got to look within, okay, we didn't practice it enough. It's my job and my assistant's job. I find that when I was a younger coach, it was easier to sit in a post game, win or lose aftermath and analysis and do more blaming or pointing to individuals. And I just haven't allowed that with my staff and Kip and Sean, they're great. And they understand it too. You know, we can certainly say, well, so-and-so didn't have a great day. Um, But we're not going to assign blame. We're going to look into with ourselves. What did we as coaches not do to best prepare um, this group? And I think that's where I understand as a parent, when I see my daughter, maybe not shake hands with somebody that she meets this past week or up in Lake Placid and doesn't look them in the eye, you know, but I want her to, (laughs) you know, I want that that relationship, that interaction of my daughter with new people. I didn't prepare enough for that. You know, and uh, I can't be upset with her. I can't make her do something once. Here it is. The game's on. You got to make that slide decision. Here it is. Charlotte, oh. you're meeting somebody new. What's the interaction going to be like? Are you going to be respectful, helpful, look people in? The- and so it's just being a dad. It's, uh, you know, first of all, I tell everybody, I tell my men, look, I, I'm trying to be a good role model for you. Don't wait till you're 45 years old like I did to have kids. Don't wait that long, you know, there's some other things, you know, maybe eating a little less meat. Yes, but it's, it's the most incredible thing. It's the greatest thing. But yes, as a coach, it has certainly helped me be, be a much more patient because I, 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 I'll I, admit when I was younger, I wasn't afraid to grab a face mask or two, you know, and part of the society is not willing to see that anymore too. But but it's just I, I, that intensity has, has been greatly reduced uh, thanks to Charlotte.
0: We could talk all day and you're not far from me. You're in Charlottesville, which by the way, if anyone's, we've had the mayor of Charlottesville on this podcast. Um, Obviously Charlottesville was in the news a few years ago for some things that I think most of not most our country is not proud of. Um, But Charlottesville is an amazing, amazing town city. Um, It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. So I hope to get down there and, and we can break bread uh, eat veggies together in person um but i wanted to start to wind down here there's there's just a couple other things i want to hit on number one is your mission statement and you've you spent time really crafting that mission statement so I'd love for you to share that with our audience
1: yeah it's it, the first four words expect nothing earn everything um those are the f- that's that's the foundation of it i can remember my father when I first became a head coach he said okay Lars all right where's the uh What's the Newt Rockney sayings? You know, what's your Vince Lombardi quotes there? Come on, you're a head coach now. You got to have the sayings. And, and I was like, okay, well, I hadn't really thought about that, but give me some time here. And so let's let this sort of naturally evolve. And um, and that was one, expect nothing, earn everything. Now, I've had some friends of mine who are in the finance industry say, ooh, I'm stealing that. I'm going to write a book about that, you know, in terms of the stock market and uh, <laughs> investing. Um, and, but yeah, it, it that's... You know, I I always wanted teams that entered game day, zero expectations. You know, we were talking earlier about what's the pregame ritual look like. What I I wanted to, and I'm gonna inject now is, I may have a different pregame if we're playing Duke versus if we're playing Southwest Missouri State. I know the guys are hyped for Duke. There doesn't need to be the big rah-rah speech, you know? It's sometimes with the Southwest Missouri State opponent, and I hope there's no such school, but you know I, that I've got to make sure we're there. The mission statement is trying to attend to that. Expect nothing. Don't step on that field, expecting you know that things are going to be given to us and that we're already up by five goals because we're UVA or when I was the Brown coach um, or the Stony Brook coach before that, when we first came up with this mission statement, you know, expect nothing, earn everything, earn it, earn it. Because boy, that's the joy of life when you know something wasn't handed to you, wasn't given to you. Now, sometimes we don't understand that and recognize that. And that's certainly what we've done this past year is recognizing our white privilege. And certainly as lacrosse players, most of us are coming from affluence and opportunities. But let's talk about the, you know, let's really recognize what you had to earn on this planet. And uh, you didn't necessarily start on second or third base for certain things in our lives. And what feels better? Nothing feels better than that stuff, right? Nothing. When you've overcome real challenges, and that's again why we like we love Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacles of the Way. When you've re- overcome real obstacles, and you had to fight and work and do everything you could, um, that's the most satisfying, rewarding things you can do. And I'm not just talking about athletics; it could be your academics. A tough course, maybe you were supposed to be in a little lower level math, but you pushed yourself to take a higher level math, so then you could take the next step to get into that econ course, so you could get into the comm school, you know, or maybe it was you know, to get yourself that job and you hunted down the trigger puller on who was doing the hirings and firings. And you just made sure you harassed that person and got in front and you got that job that if you just done the normal protocol, you never would have gotten the job. You know, whatever it is, that is the most rewarding things as we look back on our lives, um, that you really had, to, uh, you, you had to, 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 to shift the paradigm and shift the way you do things to earn. So expect nothing, earn everything. By always competing, we are always preparing to win, free of fear, in the relentless pursuit of self-knowledge. So the rest of that expands into the whole development of the man. By always competing, we want practice to be intense. We want to be getting after each other in practice. Uh, certain practices, no, you know, the Thursdays and Fridays, but the Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we're got, we're we're battling. You know, we're preparing. By always competing, we are always preparing to win, in the relentless pursuit of self-knowledge. Again, this thing called life, who are we? Are we gonna be a man in that definition I talked about to to, who loves and allows others to love him, to be loved? Who are we in terms of our our philosophies, our religion, our spirituality? The relentless pursuit of self-knowledge, the better we understand ourselves, the better we can give to others and support others.
0: What do you do to continue to grow?
1: Ooh, ooh. Well, that's the beautiful thing about the profession I'm in, is I get this new group of men. Every year, ten more people show up, and we lose ten. And even if we've only lost ten, you know the chemistry is different, the culture is different, the captaincy, the leadership is different. So it's there's always these new, the the these new individuals we've got to bring together and new challenges, and um, and so because of my profession is not, you don't just hit the reset button. And I will tell you from that sort of year to year approach, I will say I like to change things up every four or five years. Um, now I feel very lucky to have Sean Crow and Kip Turner for seven to 11 years now. So I don't want that to change, but you know, we changed the style we played my last two years at Brown. Thanks to Sean crowan who gave us the inspiration and how to do it, the blueprints. Um, I'm looking at this fall because of COVID, how do we change how we practice and prepare our men in fall across for the spring? And there's a part of me saying, well Lars, why would we change anything? It seems to be working. (laughs) But what we saw in COVID was we practiced less. There were some teams that did no fall practice because their schools decided there shouldn't be any such thing, yet played really well in the spring. I'm like, huh, maybe we overwork our men. Maybe we're overdoing fall across as we prepare for the, the championship season in the spring. And so I, I, I'm, I like to talk to the coaches and poke and prod and, and see what is there a better way of doing this and what's what's upcoming. I'll tell you this, culture, I wasn't talking about culture. If I, if I was on your show 10 years ago, I don't think I would have talked about reading books. You know, I, I would have been saying, hey, just give me Johnny's and Joe's, some good X's and O's. And let's, let's roll that ball out and smash people. Um, and then, you know, that was something I looked at some people who were being very successful. Joe Amplo was crushing it at Marquette without a locker room, in the frozen tundra, you know? And here's this Long Island, tough guy, and he's talking about culture. You know, uh, Joe Ehrman, the, uh, the Baltimore Colt defensive lineman, you know, in his book, um, you know, The Season of Life about Gilman football. And I'm looking at these tough guys, who are exposing their hearts. And so I just, it's, it's just, just learning and reading and keeping an open mind. I think that's the biggest thing.
0: Last thing for me is, it's not lost on me. You turn 50 years old and in the next three years or so, you lose your dad, you win two national championships. And so as you think about, all right, 50 for a lot of people is like this this big number or small number, depending on how you think about it. Um, but it's a number that's just, all right, where am I? I think a lot of people take inventory on where are they in their life so far. I don't know if you did. Uh, certainly my clients that I work with will say, hey, at 50, I want it X, Y, and Z. Or now that I'm 50, at 60, I want to be here. And so they start thinking about these things. As you think about where you are today, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, well, ideally right here in Charlottesville, Virginia, that's for sure. My um, my uncle Dar, my, my dad my dad was doing well with the restaurant, so I'll have to admit this. Um, success was there. Um, I attended Brown University, not on financial aid. Um, I remember he gave my brother Dar half of a $100 bill. He literally cut the money in half. I don't, I, I, I don't know if that's a felony or some sort of violation of what to do. It also sounds stupid, right? <laughs> but of like, hey, you're only halfway there. You get the other half when you turn 100. And so that, I just remember that story, that to really answer your question, like, we're only halfway there, um, and um, and so it just just I think it's a uh, it's an opportunity for me at age when I turned fifty to uh, to not think too much about the number, but to have some fun with it. Like it's um, no, we 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 didn't cut a hundred dollar bill in half, that's for sure. But um, we uh, um, you know just the way we live our lives here. Uh, Tara's a pescatarian, she eats some fish. My daughter, Charlotte, is a vegetarian. I wish she'd eat some meat. I want her to experiment and not just follow my protocol, but she doesn't like meat at this point. But the way we live our life, hopefully healthy, um, curious that there is another 50 years after uh, when I turned 50 in in 2018. And and just learning, man, there's so much to learn and just to stay curious.
0: I love it. Well, that's a beautiful place for us to wrap. Lars, is there anything you want to promote or shout out if there is an organization you shouted out a book earlier is there a nonprofit? obviously let us know how we can find the lacrosse team i know you guys are active on twitter um if you have any social media handles let us know um but what else should we know about you and what you're passionate about and just use this as a time to express your gratitude for whatever it is that you think is important that people should know more about
1: i appreciate the opportunity to have a shameless plug um it's a uh the Iroquois Nationals is the uh, the organization that brings together the uh, the Native people with their game, the game of lacrosse, uh, whether it's on an international stage or a local stage. Uh, the development of the Iroquois Nationals, to, which is not just the game of lacrosse, we talk about the spirit, bringing back their spirituality, their religion, you know, and ensuring that that's uh, not only with the Iroquois, which are the Six Nations that you see in upstate New York and Canada, but throughout the country, if the game of lacrosse can be something that is always a part of Native American lives and then promoting that on the international stage. You know, in 2010, the Native Americans did not participate because of passport issues and and weren't allowed to get to Manchester, England. In 2018, uh, almost the same thing, we were two days late leaving uh, North America to get to Israel. Uh, We we, we arrived just in time to play Team USA and be a part part of the Israel games. Um, But it's important for, it's vital, for the Native Americans to have their own passport to be seen as a sovereign nation of the Iroquois nation. And so for me, they're ensuring that we don't forget where this game came from. The Aboriginal people, the roots of this game, from those who really understand Mother Earth and appreciate um, the way the sticks were originally built, and from the hands of their of their ancestors and their forefathers and today from Alfie Jacques and Evan Cree and other stick makers of the Iroquois that, that we ensure that this game stays a part of them. So if we can continue to support them and ensure that they're a part of the game of lacrosse moving forward and that we don't forget their message, that'll be that'll be really, really meaningful to me.
0: That's beautiful. I am on social media, so I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast, strongskills.co slash podcast. Coach, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate how thoughtful and intentional you are. Um, and looking forward to meeting you in person at some point as well.
1: I really do too. Yeah, come on down or I'll be up there recruiting and let's let's stay in touch. Let's get some of that vegetarian lunch you talked about.
0: Sounds good. Take care, bud.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. I have my own routine. It's about 15 minutes and uh, I, I hide myself away. I didn't do this as a player to answer that part of the question. Um, but as a coach, a couple hours before game time, um, I find a quiet place and, uh, and I, um, I have a piece of paper with all my ancestors' um, names on it and my friends who've, who've passed away um, and animals. And, um, and that's maybe influenced by the Native American, you know, uh, sort of spirituality of, of respect the game, respect the land, respect Mother Earth. Um, and I reflect on all those who've impacted my life, who've gone and then I reflect on those who are still here who I love.